0: You're listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. All right, this morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter seven. So I invite you, if you have a Bible with you, uh, to turn to Luke chapter seven. If you don't, but you want to follow along in the app, or maybe you want both of them open, you can turn to the notes section in your app. Let me say a word about the delusion of control that we live with today, um, while you're finding Luke chapter seven, and I'll actually start a couple of chapters before then, just to read uh, two passages to you, but you can stay in Luke seven. this weekend, I had a chance to watch a, a snippet of a made-for-television movie that I saw growing up. It came out, I think, in 1989. But as I was watching it, it was on one of those like free streaming services where they break every 10 minutes for a commercial, but you only have to watch five seconds of the commercial, and then it pops up. You can skip the ad, which I promptly do. But I was, I was remembering what it was like to grow up in a time when you couldn't do that, right? Uh, that you would have these made-for-TV movies advertised for several weeks prior to them coming on, usually a Friday or Saturday or Sunday night, usually around 8 p.m. Central at least. Uh, and, and you were excited because you, there was no streaming, right? Um, if you couldn't get to a video store and rent something, you got what they made for television. But throughout it, there'd be four or five or six, four or five-minute commercial breaks. And so you held your, your potty urges and your desire to go get snacks and uh, to call Susie Sockwad and everything else for commercial breaks. And then when there's a commercial break, you jumped up and you ran your thing and, and did your stuff. And there was usually an assigned stayer, right? They didn't get up. They stayed there so that they could call back everyone in the household when it's owned. Do, do, are any of you old enough to remember the, that time? It's back on. And you'd hear feet running from everywhere. Um, coming back in there, and that's how life was. With 24-hour cable news and with social media and with streaming, these things aren't bad in and of themselves, but they have really increased our delusion of control. And the fruit of that is an increase in anxiety and frustration and irritability in us because so many things that we engage in especially culturally we can now control to a large degree in ways that we couldn't in the past we had to accept large measures of reality that were just outside of our control are you with me so the the more conveniences we have in a society the more this becomes a reality for us and yet it's a delusion we're going to look at a couple of instances in the gospel this morning where Jesus encounters people who know that they don't really ultimately control much. And it's an important thing for you and I to be reminded of day in and day out if we're truly going to be people who live by faith instead of just speak of faith. Now, before we get into Luke. Uh, Chapter 7, I want to read to you just two two short passages from Luke 2 and Luke 4 to keep in the back of your mind as we look at the encounters that Jesus has. The first is from Luke chapter 2 as Jesus is being brought in and presented in the temple. Verse 25 says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. He was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. He was waiting for the Redeemer, for the Messiah. in the sight of the nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. One more short passage from Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 19. This is when Jesus is uh, a young adult. He's, he's standing up in the synagogue and the scroll of Isaiah, the scroll of Isaiah is given to him let's look at verse 16 he went to nazareth where he had been brought up and on the sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet isaiah was handed to him unrolling it he found the place so jesus has handed the book but he finds the passage in there he intends to read where it is written the spirit of the lord is on me this is a prophetic text written about the coming Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, just keep those two passages in the back of your mind as we turn again and look at Luke 7. Luke chapter 7. What we're going to see here is basically two things. Obviously, this is a narrative passage of historical encounters that Jesus had with individuals during his public ministry. And I'm always uh, internally cautious about taking what is given to us in narrative form in scripture and, and blocking it out in an overly organized sort of uh, a modern bullet point form, because that's not how God has given it to us. So I, I want to uh, roughly speak this morning to you under two different headings. One is Jesus' heart for outsiders, Jesus' heart for outsiders, and the second is Jesus' heart for the hopeless, Jesus' heart for the hopeless. Let's begin looking with his encounter with the servants, the uh, uh, religious friends and so forth of a Roman centurion and see a word about Jesus' heart for outsiders. Luke chapter seven, beginning with verse one. When Jesus had finished saying all this, he just finished the Sermon on the Mount. To the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. Their uh, centurion servant whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. So you had a, a centurion, a, a Roman commander of around 100 men, and you see from historical documents at that time that, that centurions were men who were valued for, for being a steady hand and steady mind. They weren't, uh, they weren't uh, prone to flying off the handle. They weren't prone to reacting out of emotion. And yet when it was time to act, they were indeed men of action. They were men of action, and this centurion had a servant, a slave in his home there who was extremely valuable to him, valuable to him. Now, the language here is difficult for us in English. It's not just that he was valuable for what he could do or provide to the centurion, but he mattered. He mattered to this Roman military leader, this Gentile Roman commander. And the text doesn't tell us what he was sick with, but it does tell us that he was about to die. I was thinking about this this last week. Um, one, of the, one of the things that social media provides us and the internet is, is the way to sort of doom scroll all the time. And so I, I wound up looking at a couple of people who were talking about all of the, the filth and the foulness that we put on our body through everything that we eat today. Uh, and I was thinking, gosh, I, I will probably die in the next day or two um, just from looking at our pantry. And then I remembered, you know what, people have been dying for a long time. They've been dying for long, long before uh, we came up with processed foods, and most of them died earlier. Now I'm not like I'm not <laughs> I'm not up here advocating that you eat trash or processed foods. I'm just saying people have been getting sick, getting sick and dying um, since Genesis three. We're not told what he has, but we are told that he's near death. He's circling the drain here in verse two. The centurion heard of Jesus. Also, we don't know how he heard of Jesus. But here's the thing. Someone, someone told him about Jesus. That's how you hear about someone. Someone tells you about him. I wonder how long it's been for most of us. I include myself and our ministerial staff. How long has it been for most of us since we told someone else about Jesus? I don't mean try to get someone else to, to, to pray a prayer with us. I just mean simply told someone else about Jesus. One of the things we're going to realize as we look at our false false faith, false faith, false faith series that's coming up is most of us sort of live and operate with this subconscious idea that most of our neighbors are saved or kind of saved. First of all, you aren't kind of saved. You've either been made right with God by the power of his word and spirit, or you haven't. And we live in an area that is, that is haunted by the shadow of the gospel, where people know a lot about what they should be doing and shouldn't be doing. But in terms of inner transformation, genuine biblical regeneration, where dead people are brought to life by the power and the initiative of God, we fool ourselves ourselves. If we think up and down our streets live genuinely regenerate, born again, men and women of faith. People in your life and people in my life need to hear about Jesus. We need to be people who when we are getting ready in the mornings, we say, Jesus, give me people today to talk to about you. And then we walk through our day in the Spirit, anticipating the God of all salvation to do that. And if he doesn't do it today, I'm going to pray it again tomorrow and then try to walk through my day in the awareness and power of the Spirit, trusting him to do that. It is his role to orchestrate the encounters. It is ours to recognize it in the Spirit and be faithful to say only what God has us to say at a given time. But this centurion, someone had told him about Jesus. Somebody had told him about Jesus. And so, verse 3 tells us that he sends some elders of the Jews. He, he grabs some men that he knows that should be far more versed in who this Jesus guy is and what he's doing than he is. And he sends them to Jesus to ask him to come and heal his servant. Verse four, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. I hope some of you will will cringe. I certainly do. When I read Jewish elders who should have known better coming to Jesus and pleading For the Son of God to act based on human merit. The man we're telling you about, he deserves for you to come and do this thing. You know, the the only thing we deserve is death and condemnation. That's it. You guys have heard me tell the story once of when our kids were younger and we were eating. At that time, we only had three kids and not five. We were having lunch at a barbecue place. And Kate, who if I... Remember correctly, it was about seven or eight. Said, Dad, can we get dessert? We deserve dessert. And I said, What you deserve is death and condemnation. <laughs> but because I am a person of grace and mercy, I will get you dessert. It was a great theological moment, which they didn't appreciate. <laughs> but I did. I was talking at home the other day. Karis was saying something to me. Um, And I responded, which what I thought was a a great theologically appropriate mini-sermon, and she said, I know, blah, 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 and went on about what she was doing. So that's the nature of life in my home at times. None of us deserve to have God do anything in our lives except judge us. That's all. And we sort of re-earn that from God every single day we're breathing Every single day, we're breathing. And they just don't get it. And yet, Jesus goes anyway. Jesus goes with them. He wasn't far from the house, verse 6 says, when the centurion sent friends to say to him. Now, this is interesting, right? He already sent the Jewish elders, and Jesus isn't far. And we're not sure what's going on here in the centurion's mind because we're not told. Maybe it's like you invite somebody over for lunch thinking they won't actually come, and then they say yes. You're like, dang it. I didn't think you would say yes. I wouldn't have invited you. And you're figuring out what to do. Maybe the centurion gets nervous. He knows there's a great stark divide between Jews and Gentiles in his day. Certainly between Jewish rabbis, teachers, etc. Jews didn't set foot in a Gentile's home. Maybe just a deep awareness of who he was and who he had been. As a Roman soldier and leader. Before he'd heard about, and it's clear that he'd heard about the God of the Jews, was setting in and a deep awareness overtook him. We don't know, but Jesus isn't far, and the centurion sends friends to him to say this. Lord, verse six, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. See, the the Jewish elders don't get it. But the Gentile Roman commander does. He does. And in this story, we are beginning to see the truth. We're beginning to see the prophecy that that Simeon states in the temple courts when Jesus was an infant come to pass. A light to the Gentiles. This Gentile is beginning to understand. He says in verse 7, that's why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. He says, look, I know by, by Jewish law and religious right, uh, you're not to step foot under, under the roof of my house. I don't even though consider myself worthy to come and to meet you. And then he says, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. He says, look, there's an ultimate authority to which I answer, and yet there are men under my authority as well, and I know how it works. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And he's acknowledging that there's an authority and a power that Jesus has. And he's just been told about Jesus. You and I forget that the power of the gospel is in telling the story of Jesus. That is how God has ordained to save men and women. It's not just your witness about what he's done in your life. It's not even your witness of what he's done in your life. It is sharing the gospel itself. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That the Holy Spirit indwells and awakens dead hearts and minds. This centurion knows enough about Jesus to believe what he's heard. And here you see the the potent combination that's always required for God to move in a life. Humility and faith, deep humility, and true and honest faith. Long before Tim Keller made uh, this phrase familiar to a lot of people in evangelical life, it had already been understood and stated that I am more sinful. That this, this is a gospel understanding of who we are. I am more sinful than I ever could have imagined. And I am more loved and accepted in Jesus than I ever could have hoped for. Do you hear both the humility and the faith there? The humility and the faith. I am more sinful than I ever could have imagined. And I have to be honest with you this morning, church. I think, I think largely we're missing this understanding in the Bible Belt and Bible Belt suburbia. I think that's why so much of our worship lacks a kind of energy that you would think a people redeemed of death and an eternity separated from God would possess and would worship with. I, I, I don't think we understand or believe how fully sinful and depraved, we really are. Nor, I think, do we understand. And you've got to have that. You've got to have the bad news first. In fact, I think there's a lot of people not receiving the good news around us because they don't know the bad news. Because all they've heard now for decades is God is a God of love. And he absolutely is. He's also a God of wrath and justice. And we've been told all of our lives in here for generations... That we're good enough and smart enough, and doggone it, people like us. And self help books tell us how to fix ourselves, and religious leaders across the country tell us how to fix ourselves. And the gospel says, You are unfixable. There's something broken inside of you, and you can't get in there to fix it. But there is one who can. There's one who can, and does, and will. This is the gospel in this passage. J.C. Ryle said, humility like this, like we see in this centurion, is one of the strongest evidences of the indwelling of the Spirit of God. Now listen to this. We know nothing of humility by nature, for we are all born proud. We're all born proud. That's why you hear from children at the youngest age, mine, like nothing is yours. You can't even go to the bathroom without me. You embarrass yourself in public. And yet, no, mine is the cry of a sinful, depraved heart at two years old, at three years old. We're all born proud. To convince us of sin, to show us our own vileness and corruption, to put us in our own right place, to make us lowly and self-abased, these are among the principal works which the Holy Spirit works in the soul of man. Is it all it works? Absolutely not. But in that working, he positions us to see and hear and receive the good news of God's mercy and grace in the gospel. Jesus is, is coming to this centurion when he gets word, don't even come, just speak it, and I know it will happen. Paul tells us in, in Romans chapter 2 that... Uh, Well, he says it like this. Do do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? There are all kinds of measures of common grace that God has given you and he's given me. And he's given your neighbors who wake up again day after day. Who go to work. Who have a home. Who have clothes. Who have water. Who have food to eat. And those kindnesses and his patience and forbearance should not be mistaken for confusion on his part about who he is and who we are, but should rather be seen as a realization that it's intended to lead us to repentance. Verse 9, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. Jesus' heart spins a little bit at the humility and faith of this Gentile Roman commander. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Now, this is not a statement of condemnation, but a statement of observation. He's simply saying, Israel, everywhere I go here, Jews are demanding signs. They're demanding that I dance for them. Yet here's one who simply heard about me. And in hearing about me has said, I believe Jesus can do this. And I know I don't deserve it. But I'm going to ask him anyway. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Jesus' heart For outsiders, And here we're talking about people that are outside of the gospel, outside of the covenant community of God at at that time as God's Messiah had come and Jesus is beginning to open eyes and say exactly what the message of Jesus' revolution is. And you'll see it in a powerful way there that most of the people that sort of annoy us and disgust us and, and we wonder what's wrong with them are nothing but pictures of us apart from the gospel, of us apart from the grace of God. And we ought to welcome them and invite them and love them and show them kindness and concern. A light to the Gentiles sent by the Father to the world in full view of all the nations. Jesus' heart for outsiders. We also see Jesus' heart for the hopeless. Let's keep reading verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As Jesus is doing these things, people are are, are following. They're they're kind of picking up. We see later as Jesus begins to teach them about the cost of following him, of true discipleship, they they start to thin out. But right now the crowd's growing. Crowds always grow when there's a show to see. And And I'll just encourage you, if you like homework or connecting dots to to go home later today and read 2 Kings 5 as it relates to the, the story of the centurion here, and then read 1 Kings 17 as it relates to the widow story here. It's amazing the connection there. It's almost as if a divine mind was behind the authorship of Scripture. As he approached the town gate, A dead person was being carried out. Now some of you, you've you've been at this this place where this this woman was. We'll find out in just a minute. She's a widow, it's her only son. You've, You've laid your head down in the evening knowing that the next morning, the next day, you were going to have to bury a loved one. Those are restless times, those are painful times. And this woman isn't just stricken with grief over the loss of her only child. But I have no doubt the way that the story is written, quite aware of the hopelessness that awaited for her after he was buried. Having no one to care for her, no one to protect her, and no one to watch out for her. No husband, no other sons. You can imagine her getting up that morning, praying as a faithful Jewish woman, not knowing how Yahweh might provide for her. But where else could she go? And then she begins to hear the gathering and the sound of musicians outside her door and the murmur of the crowd as mourners came to join this funeral procession. Pick back up with verse 12. The only son, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, His heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. I don't want you to miss here that the emphasis, the emphasis in this passage is not on the dead son, but on the sad mother. It's not on the dead son. It's on the sad mother. Look at it here. Only son of his mother. And she was a widow. A large crowd from town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said to her, don't cry cry. I also don't want you to miss that Jesus takes the initiative here. This is God and the person of his son intervening in a human situation where no one had asked, no one had come to him, no one had sent anyone to him. He simply intervenes here. And I want to remind you That God in his sovereignty and goodness can intervene and act in any way he chooses, in anyone's life, at any time, for any reason. He's free to do this. He doesn't need our invitation. He shows up and does what he pleases as it pleases him. This is why who he is would be so terrifying if he weren't good. If he wasn't not only a God who loves, but a God who is love, from whom emanates all love that is true love. Then he went up and touched the bear they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. You bet they did. Because they understood that no no Jew touches a dead body. Or touches anything that a dead body's on unless they're required to, like the men carrying it. And all of a sudden, this, this Jewish rabbinic teacher with this following comes up and, and touches it. They would have been stunned. There would have been a silence there. Nobody does this. Nobody does this. Young man, I say to you, get up. Young man, I say to you, get up. Can I also say no one gives commands expecting a response from a corpse? No one who's sane does. Alistair Begg tells a great story of pastoring uh, 30 plus years uh, and can testify with most pastors that he's been left alone with the dead and dying a number of times across those years. Uh, And he says, uh, left alone in funeral homes at times, surrounded by the dead as a young pastor. He said, in my, my own personality type, scared to death, surrounded by corpses in this quiet place and desperately hoping that if I spoke to the corpses, none of them would respond. Talking to myself, in fact, if I'm quite honest, very quietly. Hoping none of them would hear and answer. He said, nobody, I mean, how ridiculous would it have been if I had looked at one and said, well, fancy a drink of water? And he or she said yes, and a couple more said, we'll have one too. Nobody does this, but Jesus does. Jesus does. And Jesus is still in the, Business of speaking to dead people. Maybe not in a coffin, but people who internally are just as dead as this young man was. Charles Wesley said it in his famous hymn, "O oh for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. He speaks and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. The mournful broken hearts rejoice. The humble poor believe. It is in this act, church, if you take what the New Testament says seriously of speaking and preaching the gospel that that dead hearts are made alive as they believe. It's not in an invitation. It's as the word is going forth that the Holy Spirit fills it and brings it into someone's life. And they believe. And we this morning Ourselves at one time were. Some of you are in here this morning and we are surrounded by millions who are as spiritually dead as this young man was physically dead. And yet, if the spiritually dead will listen to the voice of Christ, you will be made alive. And if you refuse to listen to the voice of Christ, you will remain dead in your sins guilty before a God who is coming to judge the living and the dead, once for all. Jesus says to the young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Now, I I just, I want to remind us that Jesus breaks in uninvited, unannounced, no message comes to him. He simply sees and his heart is turned toward the plight of this poor widow. Luckily with a young man's son, her only son who was dying, not even that old. Her husband had already passed away and he halts this tragic funeral procession on the way to the grave. And only Jesus can do this. Only Jesus halts a funeral procession on the way to the grave. Muhammad can't do that. He's dead and gone. Buddha can't do that. He's not with us. Confucius can't. No Republican president or Democratic president can. Mahatma Gandhi can't. Lenin can't. Marx can't. Nobody halts a funeral procession on the way to the grave and raises dead people to life but Jesus Christ. And he does it because he is the author of life and victor over death. He's the author of life and the redeemer of death. Nobody else could do that. They went into their graves not ever to be heard from again. Jesus went into the grave and three days later through the power of God started a revolution that still hasn't stopped. To which all of his closest disciples, but John the apostles gave their lives. For something that if it had been foolishness, they would have certainly known. And would have found themselves not so zealous when it came time to renounce something that they knew was foolishness anyway as law-obedient Jewish men in the first century when it came time to give their lives for it. Look at the beauty of verse 15. The dead man sits up. Now... Can, can, wouldn't it have been nice <laughs> to have been part of this funeral procession? I'd have been like, "Hold on, Bubba, get some pop, get some popcorn, because we're about to see something." All right. He sets up and he begins to talk. It's like if Jesus raised me from the dead. I just get up and go right into it. He sits up and he begins to talk, and Jesus gives him back to his mother. Jesus doesn't say, climb off this funeral bear and come with me, follow me. He says, take care of your mom. Sometimes, guys, the most spiritual thing that you can do is meet the need that's right in front of you. It's more spiritual than having a Bible study. It's more spiritual than spending time in prayer. It's more spiritual than going to the mission field. It's more spiritual than anything else you can do. Simply meeting in Christ's name and for the glory of God and good of whoever is in front of you, the need right there. And this is what Jesus does. The guy starts talking. He's like, oh, slow your roll. I know you just had an interesting 24 hours. But go to your mom, take care of her. And you know, as they're walking home, he's like, man, where do you want to go for lunch? Mama? West Cobb Diner? Jim and Nick's, anywhere you, no, baby, let's go home, I'll cook lunch for you. No, that guy just did something for me, right? Verse 16, they were all filled with awe and praised God. That is always the appropriate response when Jesus is on the move. Often, if you're like me and you grew up in a Christian home and you grew up in church, can I be honest and say that is, that is not often our first response when Jesus is on the move? Because he is often on the move in people in ways that we don't understand and wouldn't have plotted out in our human minds. And our initial response is to criticize. Our initial response is to critique critique, and condemn and question. The appropriate response when God is on the move is to sit back, be filled with awe and praise him. Praise him. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. That's the only connection they can make. We're not sure what's happening here. We still don't see this man as the son of God, but it's clear a great prophet is among us. God has come to help his people. If you were his people this morning, hear that again. God has come to help you. Is that not a stunning statement that the God of all the universe, the one as you hear me say from time to time that keeps the earth and all the planets spinning at just the right speed at just the right tilt of degree, rotating as they should, holds them in place, has come in Christ to help you. And if that won't create humility and a sense of awe in a human heart, I don't know what would. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. You see in these two encounters, and you'll see again and again. Here, Jesus has paired an encounter of a sick man with a dead man. In chapter 8, Jesus will, or, or Luke will uh, pair an encounter of Jesus with uh, a sick woman and a dead woman. Luke is very conscientious in his gospel to show how God and the fullness of God poured out in the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ is now at work in insiders and outsiders, Jews and Gentiles, men and women. And here we see Jesus, and our Jesus is a comforter. He hears the sorrow and the plea of you when you're hurting, when you're scared, when you're uncertain. He's a victor over everything that life can throw your way. If Jesus holds victory over my death, what else do I face in life that Jesus doesn't hold victory over? He's a reconciler, not just of man to God, but of man to man. He calls this young man back from death. The young man, incidentally, comes back. Like Jesus doesn't call anybody that says, "No, nah, I like it. It's pretty restful here. He comes back and Jesus reconciles him to his mom. He says, "Go back to living." Now this is not a resurrection, this is a resuscitation. This young man's gonna live for a while, only God knows how long, and he's going to the grave again. That wasn't Jesus' story, he went to the grave once. And then he walked out the other side of it victorious. As the author of life, the king over death. R.T. France, the great New Testament scholar, notes of these two interactions here. He says that as in 520, it is not the faith, as in chapter five, verse 20 of Luke, it's not the faith of the patient here that is mentioned, but rather that of the one who appeals to Jesus on the patient's behalf. Never confuse your ability to trust in God and through your prayers, by God's grace, prompt a movement of God in someone else's life. We find that witness throughout Scripture. Faith is commonly mentioned, Franz says, in the Gospels as the basis of healing, but not always. Where it is not mentioned, should we assume that it is implied? Perhaps. But the name story, the one we just saw of this encounter with this widow and her son, should give us pause. In that Jesus comes apparently as a stranger into the scene. No one appeals to him for help. And neither the mother nor, of course, the son is said to have faith. What is mentioned in this case is simply Jesus' compassion. Jesus' compassion. And what Jesus did for this young man, he will eventually do fully and eternally for all who believe. He will call us from the grave not to be reconciled to our moms at that time, but to be reconciled to God himself for eternity. We see this beautiful picture in Revelation 21, starting with verse two. I saw the holy city, John says, as God gives him this vision, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a voice from the throne saying, look, The old order. That's the future coming for you and me and all who are in Christ. Heaven is going to be, as it rejoins earth, heaven and earth, the place of no tears. Don't miss what's underneath these physical healings, though. Underneath them is a reality of sin from which you and I must be Redeemed. J.C. Ryle again said, Let us never forget this great truth. Let us never forget this great truth. The world around us is full of sorrow. Sickness, pain, infirmity, poverty, labor, and trouble abound on every side. From one end of the world to the other, the history of families is full of lamentation and weeping and mourning and woe. And from where does it all come? From where does it all come? Sin is the foundation and root to which all must be traced. There would have been neither tears nor tears nor illness nor death nor funerals on the earth if there had been no sin this is exactly what the apostle Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 5 verse 12 when he says therefore just as sin entered the world through one man speaking of Adam and death through sin and in this way death came to all people because all sinned the real issue you have this morning the real issue I have this morning the real issue all of your neighbors and all of your family and all of your co-workers have, your classmates, your immediate family is sin. And church, there is no answer for it, but the mercy and grace of God poured out freely to those who will receive it in and through Jesus Christ. I pray this morning that you will hear the voice of Christ by God's goodness and to his glory be saved be sanctified be quickened that if you're carrying sin you might confess it because there's nothing hidden from God our secret sin isn't hidden from him and our greatest works do not impress him there's no place for pride or self justification in the life of a Christian This is why we worship. This is why there's joy. This is why we're generous. Just a minute, I'm going to pray for us. As I do, our offering users are going to make their way to their positions. When I finish praying, they'll pass the buckets. We'll receive offering this morning. Your connection card's in there. Some of you need to make some decisions this morning. I pray that you will not push away and silence the voice of Christ in your life. Let's pray. God, we are this morning and always at your mercy. God, remind us that as we gather in this moment as your people in your presence, we are indeed in a unique way on holy ground. That this is a, a sacred space and a sacred time, Lord, in which you visit us in unique and special ways through your spirit, through the power of the risen Lord. And God, as we prepare to give, I pray that we would understand what an act of worship, faithfulness, and obedience that ultimately is. God, we're commanded to generosity and faithfulness financially to you. It's modeled for us. God, it flows freely from hearts who understand who you are and what's been done for us in our lives. So God, I pray now that your blessing would rest and your pleasure on those who are about to give. God, increase their trust in you. Take all that's given, stretch it, multiply it, use it, God. God, for the beauty of your name in advance of the gospel. God, for those who need to make decisions this morning, Holy Spirit, I pray that your voice would be so loud and so clear in their souls right now that there'd be nothing else to do but bow before you and acknowledge you as a Savior and Lord of all. Pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us online at lnbc.us. Thanks for tuning in today.